Rhonda and Rochelle, what a good reminder for us. We get in the middle of a storm and we really can't see the sunshine because of the clouds, because of the wind, because of the rain, whatever it may be. We can't see it. God sees it and God knows. If you're going through a difficult time this morning, let me assure you there's a God in heaven that sees the end from the beginning. You put your trust in him. He will guide you through. Take your Bible with me. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, one of the most endearing stories in all of the New Testament, the story of the Good Samaritan. Often it is used as a story simply to illustrate how we ought to be toward the people we know and the people that we meet. And that is a legitimate use of that. But beyond that, there is teaching in that passage that illustrates the truth that Jesus was able to get across to a man that the Bible refers to as a lawyer. Now, when we think of an, a lawyer today, we think of an attorney. We think of someone who argues a case between the court system, between now, unfortunately, before the court system, before now what has become a horribly corrupt judiciary in the United States. It's activist, it's political, it's disgusting to see what our, where our judiciary is headed, but that's where we are. We think of a, an attorney. We think of someone maybe like, like good old Rudy Giuliani. We think about Giuliani a little bit, or, or we think about somebody else. This is not the picture in Luke chapter 10 of an attorney. The word lawyer is used because this man that approached Jesus with a question. It was, by the way, a trick question. It wasn't a genuine question. This lawyer, this expert, he was not an attorney, but he was an expert at the law of Moses. He was a religious scholar. In that day and time, this man would have been very highly regarded as someone to whom you could turn if you read something in the Old Testament and you didn't understand it exactly. Well, let's go talk to brother so-and-so, doctor so-and-so. He knows this would have been the guy. And I think that it is pretty clear that he was put up to asking Jesus a question, what would be a leading question and frankly a trick question to see if he could trip up Jesus in regard to his answer and then have something about which to accuse the Lord. There is, by the way, a very disingenuous form of discussion that takes place when people try to craft a, qu a question in order to trip you up. This is very typical today of the modern media. Very, very typical. And all they want is a sound bite. Years ago, I was, I was open to being interviewed by the media. I'm no longer open to that at all. Uh, I consider the whole thing to be fake news. And they can take a long discussion and cut two sentences out of it, put those together and make you say something you never said. It's, a, it's really a shame. It's really a shame how dark our media has become in this country, don't believe them. Don't believe them. The, the stories are all set up to lean you a certain direction. And so such was the case with the man who actually approached Jesus. He approached Jesus with a question. It wasn't a sincere question. It was a question designed to trip Jesus up. Look with me, if you will, Luke chapter 10 if you will, verse 25. The Bible says this, and behold, a certain lawyer. This man was a religious expert in interpreting the Old Testament. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. This word tempted doesn't mean tempted him to sin, but it means to put him to the test, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the divinely inspired commentary on this passage reveals the motive. The motive was not, Master, I want to be saved. Show me the way. 
The motive was, I'm going to tempt or put you to the test and find out what your answer is so that then I can criticize. That is always disingenuous. But that is precisely what this man did. And he came to Jesus. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer is interesting because he did something that was very typically Jewish. Rather than answer the question directly, he answered the question with another question. In fact, when you study the passage, you're going to find out that there are four different questions, two asked by the lawyer and two asked by Jesus. And the lawyer's initial question was designed to somehow trip Jesus up, but Jesus responds not by answering that. You know, if, if someone said, Pastor Marty, what must I do to inherit eternal life? My answer instantly would be this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That would be my answer. You'd almost expect that here, but the Lord knew that there was something tricky going on, and so he answered this man's question with another question. And he said this in verse 26, Jesus said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? Now what is interesting about that? Remember that Jesus was speaking to an expert in the Old Testament law. He was speaking to someone that had a PhD or maybe even a higher degree than that, a theological degree. This man was very well respected and, and he asks a basic question of Jesus to trip Jesus up and Jesus turns it around on him and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, uh, what does the Bible say? You're an expert, now I'm paraphrasing, extrapolating, you understand. You're an expert, what does the Bible say? By the way, that's always a good question. It doesn't matter what a church or denomination says in regard to eternal life. It does not matter what a group says. It doesn't matter what the Baptist church says. Do you know what matters? What the Bible says. The Bible is our final authority. By the way, one thing that's good about this lawyer Though he was trying to trip Jesus up, one thing that was good about him, he did recognize the Bible as a final authority. He was an expert in the law. And so Jesus directs him back to the Bible. He said to him, what, what is written in the law, how readest thou? And the lawyer responded, verse 27. He answering said, and here is the answer, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and, and thy neighbor as thyself. Now that's interesting. You say, Pastor Marty, why would that Jewish expert in the Bible, why would this renowned theologian and this man who was expert at the Jewish text, why would he take a text from Deuteronomy as well as a text from Leviticus and randomly, quote unquote, join those two together in answer to Jesus' question? Well, here's the answer. Because every Jew understood that those two texts of Scripture were the big commands of God. Now, we have Ten Commandments. And by the way, those two big commands, they're reflected in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments actually flesh that out. But if you want to know what is the big thing, Pastor Monty, what, what's the biggest command of God in all the Bible? Well, it's not the Old Testament law that you're not allowed to eat pork. It's not that. By the way, that does not apply to you. That is Israel. And all God's people said? Amen, Amen and pass the bacon. <laughs> you, you say, Pastor Mati, are you saying that there are certain commandments that take precedence over others? The simple answer is yes. 
period. Yes, the two great commandments are these. What comprises, in another passage, Jesus said this. What comprises all of the law and the prophets. If, if you want to take the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets, you want to take all of that and boil it down to two things. What are those two things? Number one, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Heart, soul, mind, strength. Number two, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And every Jew understood that the law of God could be boiled down to those two principles. And so when the man quoted those scriptures, both from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus, the Bible says in verse number 28, he, Jesus, said unto him, thou hast answered right this Jew, and thou shalt live. Wait, wait a minute, Pastor Monty. That makes me a little nervous. Um, you know, Jesus never mentioned anything about faith. Jesus never mentioned anything about grace. He never even mentioned that one day he would be crucified. And, and this man quotes some verses about loving God and, and loving your neighbor. And, and it seems like Jesus is saying, now let's just deal with this. And we're going to deal with it. It seems like Jesus is saying, yeah, love God, love your neighbor, and that's enough to get you to heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying. You see, the question that was asked by the lawyer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question is framed in a certain verbiage in the Greek New Testament. You don't see it in the English because English doesn't reflect all of the verb tenses that the Greek language had. When that lawyer said, what must I do? He was saying, what must I do as one great act? What is the one thing that I need to do that I can complete and finish and that will guarantee me eternal life? That sentence, what must I do or what should I do to inherit eternal life? The word do is in what's called the aorist tense. You don't need to know all that, but that's what it is. And essentially he was saying, what is the one big thing I can do? By the way, you know there are religions that teach there's one big thing you can do. They'll say something like this. Well, the one big thing you can do is make a pilgrimage to Mecca, and that seals the deal. We don't believe that, of course. But then within Christendom, there are people who say, well, the one big thing you can do, just make sure you get baptized, and you're good to go. No, 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 no. This man wanted one thing that he could do. You know, Pastor Monty, it just seems like Jesus was saying, you, you do this thing, you're going to live, verse 28. You know what the difference is? When Jesus said, thou hast answered right, and by the way, this was the correct answer. When Jesus said to him, thou hast answered right, when he said the words, this do, it's a different tense. It's a present tense. Well, Pastor Monty, what does that mean? In other words, the lawyer was saying, what is the one thing that I can do, that I can complete, that I can have done in the past that takes care of it? And Jesus said this, if you do these things, love God, love your neighbor, present tense, do them consistently. Listen carefully. Do them unfailingly. Do them without exception. Listen to what Jesus was saying. If you want to inherit eternal life, you have to fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets. 
It is comprised in those two commandments, and you have to do it perfectly and consistently your whole life without one exception. This you do, you keep on doing, and you never slip up. Boom, you inherit eternal life. Well, Pat, how could that be? You'd be perfect. You'd be perfect. By the way, we'll see in a moment that the lawyer saw he was trapped. Jesus simply changed the verb tense and said, if you'll do that, and you will pass one, that's exactly what I've been trying to do my whole life. Love God and love my neighbor. Look at me. Look at me. You have failed. I have failed. We have all failed. Now, some of us are better at it than others of us. But the verb tense Jesus uses insists that there not be one exception. Pastor Monty, I I love my neighbor, unless their dog gets in my yard. I heard something so silly about some people who got in a fuss with their neighbor because the leaves from the neighbor's tree were blowing into their yard. And the, the Christian guy, the guy who claimed to be saved, boy, I struggle, I struggle with junk like this. Okay, if you're like this, you listen to me. I struggle with this. And so the trees from this neighbor's yard, the leaves, blew in and covered, I'm really mad, his leaves blew into my yard. Why aren't you mad at God? He directed the wind that day. When people act that way and profess to be Christians, they push other people straight toward hell. I want you to understand that. Leaves in a yard are no big deal. And by the way, you could stand to lose some weight by going out there. It's not going to hurt you to burn a calorie, folks. Going out there with a rake or a mower and mowing it up and loving your neighbor. You see, when you really get right down to it, we might claim to love our neighbor consistently, but, but maybe there's exceptions. What Jesus was saying is you have to be perfect about loving God and you have to be perfect about loving your neighbor. Because if you do those two things, you have fulfilled all the law and the prophets. And Jesus, as he said this, I imagine the lawyer's eyes became downcast because right away he knew he had not lived up to the very verses that he quoted. And do you know what Jesus was doing here? He was condemning. That's a strong word, right? He was condemning that man. He was causing that man to see that he had failed. I know it's not fashionable to come to church and hear that you failed, but it's realistic and it's reasonable. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And by comparison to other people, you might be a good person, but in comparison to God himself, you are not. And when we fall short of the glory of God by sin, we stand in condemnation. And Jesus was trying to make this very pious, very, very, very knowledgeable, this very astute religious leader who probably knew how to keep all the rules perfectly. He was trying to make this man see that fundamentally he was lost. It's brilliant. What Jesus does is brilliant that fundamentally he is lost and Jesus took the very verses he knew the man would use. And he said, okay, you failed. Well, how do you know that that's how this was taken? Look at verse number 29. But he, the religious expert, but he, 
willing to justify himself. Okay, he knew he lost round one. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you knew you lost round one? Yeah, you have, you have. Pastor Monty, what's your approach? I just get louder. <laughs> How many say, preacher, I've done that before? Oh yeah, come on, get your hands up. If, you're, if your hand's not up, you're not married. The Bible says he, the attorney, willing to justify himself, he knew that Jesus had flipped this on him. He, willing to justify himself, said unto, said unto him, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Isn't that what people do? When people understand that they're wrong about the big issue, what they do is they drill down onto some little peripheral issue and he says, well, Jesus, I know I haven't always loved my neighbor, but the Bible's really not that clear. Who, who actually, who is my neighbor? Now, you might be surprised to find that this was actually a rather hot topic in that day and time. And your Jewish teachers, the rabbinical teachers, did not say that everybody's your neighbor. Now, we're not talking about your next door neighbor, your neighbor two doors down. We're not limiting it to that. But the teaching of Scripture is, that every human being that comes across your pathway is your neighbor. We'll see that in the illustration in a moment. But this Jewish lawyer, understanding that he had certainly not lived up to it, he, who is my neighbor, Jesus? Let me draw you in to a theological controversy. The rabbinic teaching was this, that the only neighbor you really have if you're Jewish is another Jew. The Gentiles are not your neighbors. In fact, the rabbis taught the Jews to hate the Gentiles. They taught that, that the Gentiles are not your neighbors. Now, there's another group of people that wouldn't be considered your neighbors either if you're full-blood Jew, if you're Orthodox Jew. That was the Samaritans. They're not your neighbor either. In fact, there's argumentation in Jewish history that goes back millennium. Who are we allowed to hate? That's the question. By the way, people who think that way have a problem. Who, who can we hate? Pastor Monty, give me a list of everyone we can hate. You know, if I was in the flesh, it'd be like Joe Biden. It'd be like Nancy Pelosi. She's kind of an old, you know, it would, it would be all that. But I'm, but I'm preaching, so I'm not in the flesh, at least not at this moment. I'm just saying if I were. You know, Jesus said this. Love thine enemies. That's what Jesus taught. And so the question, who is my neighbor? He was trying to dr bring Jesus into a theological controversy. Not only did some that all Jews taught that the only ones you have to be concerned about as your neighbor are fellow Jews, but there were some Pharisees, listen to this, historically some Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were super highfalutin. I mean, they were the strict ones. They, were, they, they had all the rules, regulations, and they uh, knew the law of God, and then they made a rule around the rule, and a rule around the rule, and a rule around the rule. And boy, they were the strict ones. They, I mean, they were, the, they were walking the narrow line, those Pharisees were. You know what the Pharisees taught? The Pharisees taught that your neighbor is only another Pharisee. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that convenient? Isn't that convenient to push other people? Well, yeah, he's not a Pharisee. He's not part of our club. He's not part of our tribe, so he's not our neighbor. We don't have to help him. We don't have to have any obligation to anyone else because if you're not in our club, if you're outside of our tribe, 
we have no obligation. They tried to drag Jesus into this controversy. Well, as you can guess, Jesus wasn't having any part of it. You see, they wanted to limit, or the lawyer wanted to limit his obligation by asking, well, who is my neighbor? It was a trick question. It was a question with an assumption that would reduce obligation. If Jesus answers it's just the Jews, well, that are a lot of people, but at least they don't have to worry about the whole world. If Jesus takes the position that is, well, it's just the, if you're a Pharisee, you know, the only neighbors you have are your Pharisees, that limits the obligation more. But if Jesus says that your neighbor, whom you are to love, is everyone, your obligation just went through the roof. Pastor Monty, that, that's huge. I mean, I, I, I try to get along with my neighbors, but I can't genuinely say that, that, that I love my neighbor like the guy at work or the lady I don't like at the gas station. I, I can't genuinely say I love them as myself. Folks, that's just the point. Jesus was saying, we failed. We've all failed. We've all failed. And so trying to dra- dra- drag Jesus into this religious controversy, he was having none of it. And so, in answer, if you look at verse number 29, the lawyer wanting to justify himself, to gain ground again, he'd lost round one. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? And then rather than answering the question directly, Jesus told a story. A story we know as the story of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story, it talks about a man who was a victim. In verse number 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Here's a man that got beat up. He got beat up pretty bad. He hadn't died, of course, but he was half dead. He may have even had the appearance of someone who had died. He was so beaten up on the side of the road. He was clearly a victim He was someone that was a victim of an outside attack. But every person in this room and every person outside of this room is a victim of Satan. I want you to understand something. Well, Pastor Monty, you know, I've just made all the right choices and I have arrived. You, sir, are a victim of your own hubris, means pride. You're a victim of your own pride. He's Pastor Monty, I have every right to be proud, okay? If you're proud, take heed lest you fall. Understand something. The Bible says, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. If you would learn to view people the way Jesus views them, your whole attitude toward others would change. And I'm not just talking about unsaved people. Well, Pastor Monty, they're just all so wicked, and it's blah, 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 blah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about them, but not just them. If you started to view people as Jesus views people, your attitude toward other Christians would change. You see, Scripture is really, really clear that my neighbor is not just people who are like me and in lockstep agreement with me. My neighbor is everyone. And Jesus, when he gave the story of the Good Samaritan, he focused on the issue of Scripture, which is my responsibility to my neighbor. Now, remember the question he asked was, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story. What is the story he told? He told about a victim in verse 30, but he also told about the religious legalists in verses 31 and 32. 
So this man has been beaten up, verse 30. And verse 31, by chance there came down a certain priest that way. He's coming down the mountain, Mount Zion. He's headed down there to, toward Jericho. By chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, this priest and this religious man, he immediately went to him to help him to save his life because he loved Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. That must be a modern version. Let's see what the Bible says. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, this priest, he passed by on the other side. If that weren't bad enough, and by the way, this is what a lot of Christian people do. I'm not, well, we'll get there in application in a minute. I just want to preach. Verse 32 if that weren't bad enough, look at what it says in verse 32. And likewise a Levite. Who's a Levite? One who served in the temple. So you have a priest with a sacerdotal position in the temple. You have a Levite, one who serves in the temple. Both of them are in the very presence of God. The place of the physical presence of God on earth was the Holy of Holies, the temple. Likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, looked on the man beaten up, and passed by on the other side. What is extremely telling is that both of these people saw the man. Jesus makes that point. It's not that they did not notice him. It's not that they were walking down the road and they were busy looking at their cell phones and so they just passed by without noticing. The Bible makes it crystal clear that these men looked on this man and perhaps even locked eyes with him, and then they walked over, they made a specific effort to go over to the other side of the street to avoid him entirely. They saw him, but they didn't really see him. What they saw was potential defilement. They had just come off of perhaps a religious high, a priest and Levite, and maybe it was their time to serve in the temple, and they maybe came from a place of religious purification, ceremonial purification. They come down perhaps with some kind of religious high, and they don't want to be defiled by having anything to do with that man who, though he wasn't dead, could be near death, and defilement from touching a dead body wouldn't be a good thing. So, so rather than be defiled, now you listen, Rather than be defiled, they got out of the guy's way, walked as far as they could, and they avoided him. Pastor Monty, that's not right. So they saw potential defilement. Well, that's not right. Neither is any form of Christianity that avoids lost people, that ignores them, that says that person has too big a problem, I, I, well, we can't help him. Pastor Monty, we shouldn't reach out to so-and-so because, you know, we gotta put garlic around our necks, wear a cross and hold it up. Sometimes churches can do that. Sometimes churches, and I, this is not a problem at Faith Baptist, and I, it never will be as long as I'm pastor. Sometimes churches can want to protect so desperately that the whole world goes to hell and an attitude is implanted in people that we need to avoid rather than rescue. That is a religious motivation. It is never a Bible motivation. They saw him as potential defilement. They, they saw him as potentially a problem. 
You ever seen someone and say, you know, I just don't want to get involved. Maybe God leads someone providentially down your pathway, and they have a real need. They're desperate. By the way, those meetings are not chance meetings. I want you to understand something. That's not a chance meeting. There's a God in heaven who orchestrates those things. And you know, Pastor Monty, you know, um, yeah, I just, that guy's a real problem. I just don't want to get involved. Not so much as to even point him in the right direction. Don't even look at him. Just keep on going. They saw him, I'm sure, as an interruption. After all, they were going somewhere. They were busy. Well, I, 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 I cannot be bothered with that because I'm busy doing God's work. I can't be bothered with a human being. Look up here. Look up here. That kind of dismissive attitude toward people is a crime against God. I want you to understand that. Oh, Pastor Monty, I mean, I, I just don't have time. We don't have time to point someone to Jesus. If you're that busy, you're too busy. And by the way, you are focused entirely on the wrong thing. I want to stop for a moment and say something. I did a study this week, this coming week, I'll be teaching a class I was asked to teach, and I did a study on research, recent numbers, regarding churches and the health of churches in America. Now, this research addressed um, all kinds of churches, Protestant churches, across the board. So any, anything that's not Catholic and is a church, this research addressed. And the research said that in 2022, the research was done in 2022, it was in reference to 2021, listen to what I'm about to say, the research said, Barna, which is a legitimate research group, the research said that 42% of pastors during the time period of 2021 considered strongly leaving the pastoral ministry. I want you to let that sink in. 40, now, they didn't all leave. We, we know that because the churches still have pastors. But 42% considered it strongly. What were the reasons? Uh, reason number one was the stress of the job. Okay? Don't, don't make it hard on our staff. Don't make it hard on our staff. This is a very stressful job. And, and I'm de- little picky uni little things, just, just forget about it. I don't, I don't deal in picky uni anymore. Okay? <laughs> stress was number one. Number two... Loneliness and isolation. By the way, that ain't your preacher. My wife said to me the other day, she said, I have, you have more friends than any man I've ever seen. I do, and I thank you, by the way, congregation. I thank you for that. I thank you for that. But that was one of the number two reason. Number three reason, you know what it was? Division, both in their church and in the country at large. Those three things worked together to cause some of these men, 42% of the pastors polled, to want to walk out the door on pastoral ministry. Pastor, well, a good thing they didn't. Oh, I know it's a good thing they didn't. But do you know what does happen every year? According to Barna Research, every year in America, 4,000 churches close their doors. I hope you're listening to what I'm saying. And that's churches across the board. We're not talking about autonomous Baptist churches like ours, but, but that's a church that's some like ours, but some totally not like ours. 4,000! Ah, Pastor Monty, that may be so, but we're going to plant some more churches. In the last 20 years, on average, we have accomplished planting 1,000 churches per year, on average, for 20 years, with a loss of 4,000 churches per year. 
Are we going forward or backward? We're going backward. That might be part of the answer for why our country is the way that it is. But it might also mean this, that we've forgotten about evangelism. We get so wound up doing little things that make us comfortable, make us happy, make, that, that, that satisfy our particularities and our preferences. We get so caught up in that and we get really emotional about it. Pastor Ronnie, the color of the wall, I disagree. <laughs> really emotional about it. But very few people get emotional over the fact that their neighbor is going to hell. Very few people. Well, you can get people all riled up over some tiny little issue, but do we care enough about souls? These two men who passed by the, the beat-up man, they probably had a whole lot of issues on a long agenda, and he wasn't one of them. They both, in, they both avoided any kind of involvement. He wasn't part of their group. Now, by the way, had that man who was beat up on the side of the road, the Bible doesn't say who he was, had that man been a priest, uh, they'd be like, oh, we've got to help him. He's a priest. Had he been a Levite, yeah, he's one of us. We've got to help him. But since he wasn't part of their group, it didn't really matter. He wasn't, after all, their concern. They had other important duties to attend to. We need to be really careful that our quote-unquote religion, and that's what a lot of it boils down to, that our quote-unquote religion doesn't ostracize people who have problems because guess what? You have problems. I had a man say to me one time, well, Pastor Monty, I'm, I'm just a very mature believer. Every time someone has said those words to me in over 35 years of ministry, I've heard it a few times. Oh, Pastor Monty, I'm a, I'm a very mature believer. They turn into, in my experience, the biggest whiny baby that I've ever met in my entire life. Religion ostracizes people with problems. It excludes all outsiders. Religion always views others with suspicion. Doubtless these men did just that. Religion treats those who are different with either indifference or worse yet, with disdain. At least there was indifference in the passage. And religion sees righteousness in separation from hurting people. That's not religion. That's not Christianity. That's not Bible. Jesus said we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Well, Pastor Monty, you, you need to reach the more upper class people. I had a man say that to me one time. My ministry should be to reach upper class people. I talked to a young preacher boy who said, we're going to build a church. And by the way, come back tonight. Come back tonight for my message tonight. We're going to build a church, Pastor Monty, that, that is geared toward focusing on reaching a particular demographic. We're going to reach the rich people. That's ridiculous. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. You know what demographic I'm looking for? You want to know my demographic? Human beings. I'll take dogs too, but human I love dogs. Human beings. That's the demographic of Jesus, not a particular set of people. The Samaritan shows up. And I don't, I'm not going to go through all of it. You know what happened. A man of a despised class, a man who was looked down upon. He shows up, but he saw the man differently. The Bible says he had compassion on him. Do you know why? He saw him with his heart. 
It's time for us to start seeing people with our heart, not just with our eyes. It's time for us to see people not with a critical view, but with a compassionate view. He got involved in the crisis in verse 34. He went out of his way. He stopped in what he was doing because he recognized he had both an obligation and an opportunity to another human being. In verse 35, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, invested long term. And so when we come down to the end of the story, if you look at verse 36, Jesus wrapping up his story said to the lawyer, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Wait a minute. Do you know that's a different question? Look at me. Now this is hard, so look at me. The lawyer said, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Let's get you involved in a little religious controversy. Who's my neighbor? Jesus didn't answer that question that way. In fact, he turned it all around. He said to the lawyer, he said, who was the neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? Do you see the difference there? It, it, it was the same question, but a different way and with a very significantly different meaning. Jesus is trying to make the man see. He said, who is the neighbor to that man? Quit worrying about who your neighbor is so you can exclude someone from help. But rather, in my story, Jesus said, who is the neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves? And look at the answer. Verse 37, the attorney, the lawyer said, he that showed mercy on him. By the way, those words show a level of deep prejudice. Huh? Yeah. The man could not bring himself to admit that it was a Samaritan that was the good neighbor. He avoided those words altogether because to say the word Samaritan and to say that that is a good person, it flew in the face of all of his theological beliefs. So he said, well, he that showed mercy on him then said Jesus unto him, go and do likewise. Continually do likewise. Pastor Monty, what happened? In the initial question, the lawyer tried to trip up Jesus. In the answer to his question, he walked away with a guilty conscience. Because this one who knew the Bible inside out knew in his heart that he had not so much as lifted a finger to help someone outside of his immediate circle. He knew that he hadn't loved God all that he should, certainly. I think we could all admit to that. And he also knew that he hadn't done what he needed. Maybe he took care of his wife and kids or his family or whatever. Maybe he took care of them. But outside of that tiny little circle, he did nothing for everyone. And Jesus nailed his hide to the wall. And he said, you have failed. I'll finish with these thoughts. Religion always fails. Christianity transforms lives. Genuine Christianity says, I have been saved by the grace of God, and I want to introduce you to a Savior. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what background you are. I don't care about your bank account. I don't care if you have the ability to give or to not to give. I just want to tell you about Jesus because you're laying there beat up and the only one that can help is Jesus and I'm going to tell you about Christ and there is healing, there is wholeness, there is soundness in the name of Jesus. Meet Jesus. That's the invitation. Ladies and gentlemen, 
Religion pushes people away. Religion doesn't see it as our responsibility. But Jesus points to us and says it is. We're not to exclude those who need help because they're not part of our tribe. We're not to view, we are to view everyone with compassion. Souls for whom Christ died made in the image of God. We're not going to justify ourselves by these secondary concerns. People love to do that. They love, well, Pastor Monty, I just want to know what is your plan for a future building program so I can disagree with you. Okay, well, let me tell you, right. don't ask me that. Do you, you want to know why? I don't have a plan. I think I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit direct us. So you inquire of him if you need to know the future. I don't have a crystal ball, nor do I pretend to have one. But the main issue is keeping people out of hell, wouldn't you say? The main issue is loving someone to Jesus. The main issue is picking up the fallen. The main issue is helping someone. Don't let your religion get in the way of your Christianity, folks. <laughs> Happens a lot. Keep the main thing the main thing. Get out of your comfort zone and love someone to Jesus Christ. Pastor, how did the lawyer, when the conversation ended, how did he leave? You know, the Bible doesn't say, but Jesus won every round of that, and I'm sure he was convicted to the core of his being. I, it would be my hope, the Bible doesn't say, but it would be my hope that at some time this man would have come to recognize his need and trusted Christ. I, I do not know. But this I know, that in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus taught us what we're to do within our church, loving one another the proper way, within our community, and through our missions program, loving the world. Because we're broken people in a broken world, but we have the answer, and his name is Christ. I challenge you this week, love somebody to the Savior. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, you'd help our hearts and minds to focus on the things that are genuinely important. Lord, the priest and the Levite, I'm sure they had all kinds of things they thought were important. They passed by a man that should have grabbed the compassion of their heart. The lawyer who came to Jesus, he had all kinds of good theology and arguments. and Boy, he knew the book, but he didn't understand what it meant to love God or his neighbor. Help us, Lord, not to fall into that same trap that religion presents to us. But I pray, Lord, we'd be a people that would be welcoming and loving. And Lord, that we would see people for who they really are, souls for whom Christ died, broken, in need of the repair that only Jesus can give. Holy Spirit, speak to every heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Stand with me, please, everyone. We'll stand together. At Faith Baptist Church, we give a hymn of invitation. It is an opportunity for you to respond to the gospel.